Welcome to the Alpi Parsha podcast, where each week we do a light dive into the weekly Torah portion. We'll sum up the Torah portion of the week, reflect on what it means to us, and draw connections to Judaism and other Jewish texts. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Slaika, and I'm joined by Aaron Rotenberg, your other co-host. Hey, Paul. <laughs> hey, Aaron. How are you today? I'm good. Excited to be back for our second round of LP Parsha podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's doing our second time around. Do you have any thoughts or feelings so far about the Parsha and the how it's going and just doing a podcast in general? I feel pretty excited. It was so fun listening to the first episode and hearing all of your insights and knowing that there's some chance to reflect, I think for me makes me keeps the Parsha bouncing around in my head more. So I'm grateful for that. How are you feeling? I'm good. I think uh, this sort of thing can definitely awaken almost the narcissist in you a little bit as well. I think Mm -hmm. I did listen to it on and off a few times. I was like, what do we sound like? What are we like? So uh, it was kind of funny to think about what I sound like. Uh, but I did love it. It uh-huh. was just definitely gave me a lot of life and a lot of energy to do a, a, a light dive into the Parsha with you. So uh, I'm excited to do it again. And, you know, of course, Genesis, hmm. it's full of these really quippy tales. Maybe further on, we're going to have a little bit more of to do a deeper dive when it becomes a bit more abstract. But I just think these early stories are really striking and obviously reverberate not with Jew- not with just Jewish people, but with the culture at large. Lots of traditions share these stories. Uh, so I'm excited to kind of get into get into the uh, this week's parsha and kind of uh, think about what it means to us. And I even I even took some notes and even yeah. like one oh. uh, not a correction per se, but you know when I was referencing uh, one of our folk stories last week. It was the first things created by Louis Ginsburg's Legend of the Jews. That is mm-hmm. a book I will be referencing a lot in this podcast because it's where a lot of the a lot of where a lot of the folk stories I look up come from. Um, so when he talked oh. about that folk story of God reading the Torah or consulting with the Torah on building the world, mm-hmm. that is from that book. But I believe this story exists in multiple versions and multiple traditions. So look out for that later on in this week's parsha as well. Uh, so yeah, do you want to start into our one minute summary? Do you want to go first and I'll go second this time around? Yeah, I'm down to go first. Okay. Should we get Let's... the timer out? One minute, <laughs> minute summary. summary. One minute summary. One minute summary. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Okay. Let's have at it. Go ahead. In this week's Parsha, we have the story of Noah, where God or the divine starts by feeling regret for creating things in the world, humanity that isn't really going well. So God speaks to Noah, the one righteous person and says, okay, you and your family, you're all right. Build a big ship, build an ark. Here's the dimensions of it. Uh, and gather either seven or of the, of the pure animals or two of every animal, put them on the ship and uh, everybody else is going to be flooded out. And that happens, comes to pass. There's a big storm for 40 days, 40 nights. Uh, everybody on the ark gets saved. They send out some birds, a raven and a dove. And the dove comes back with a branch and the 
they realize that they're safe to come out. There's a big uh, celebration, uh, a, a breach, a covenant, and humanity continues. <laughs> All right. Good. So, um, great summary. That's hard. Mm-hmm. That is hard to do in a minute. Like, uh, I think one advantage we'll have as we go further along is maybe this won't happen for you, but some of the stories get less and less familiar to me. So it'll be easier for me to stick to a minute. Once mm-hmm. I'm like, what, what is this about? I read it a few days ago. <laughs> but because um, the early ones, like we said, they're iconic. So it's hard to fit everything in. So let yeah. me give it a go. Are you ready? Yeah, let's let's do this one minute. And you'll keep me on time as well then. We'll, uh, yeah. Okay, three, two, one. God is very regretful because humanity is not living up to standards. So he decides to have a flood to destroy all of humanity. And one person is great called Noah. So him, his kids, whose names are significant, and their wives and his wife all go into the ark. God gives a really detailed plans on how to build the ark. There's seven clean animals, but two of the unclean animals. They go through it, and then everyone dies besides Noah and his family. They have some false starts of getting off the ark. I forget the exact details, but I remember they look around. Things aren't settled yet, but then they look around a second or third time, and things seem settled, as demonstrated by the rainbow and a dove returning. And they repopulate the earth. Then they go through a lot of genealogy. And some generations later, people build the Tower of Babel. And God does not care for that at all. So to make sure that they can't build the Tower of Babel, he changes everyone's languages. Because previously, everyone spoke the same language. And the Tower of Babel cannot go further. Whoa. That that was great. I think you nailed that. (laughs) I feel like you really nailed last week, so I'm, I'm glad I could nail one of the summaries. It was yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate that you got to the Tower of Babel, which I didn't get to, and maybe you were also saying last time that you appreciated that I included genealogy, and it's like, yeah, I like that Paulo included the genealogy because it's it feels in some ways like it's not part of the narrative, so it's easy to skip over. But the Torah feels like it's important to include it for some reason, and. I used to read it and think, oh, this is boring, but I'm more intrigued by it these days. It's so funny you'd say that too, because I'd say that for me, this genealogy was a can't miss. And I did write down a few of the names I liked. There is a, as we learned from mm-hmm. last week, there's another Tuval. Um, that name comes up again. Uh, and we see the name Ashkenaz, which is really interesting, which is mm-hmm. what we call European descended Jews. Um, yeah. And another fun one was the Nimrod. I remember uh, uh, James, my husband, asking me, like, uh, because Nimrod seems to be not an uncommon name in Israel. I feel like I've seen a few Nimrods in my day. But in mm-hmm. English, it seems to denote an insult. So I did Google this. And according to Wiktionary, the uh-huh. Wikipedia dictionary, no one knows why in American English it became an insult. Because there's no reason why it should be an insult. But at some point, Nimrod became to mean an insult. So that just goes to show that uh, Nimrod, mm -hmm. we use it pejoratively, but we don't know why. So it's interesting. But I think Nimrod is associated with the Tower of Babel. I have that association in my head, and I don't know where it comes from. But I feel like there's some ambivalence. Maybe we'll bring in Jenny, my spouse, more one of these days. But when she was first reading the Torah, one part that really stuck out to her is this line about Nimrod, because right, the Torah gets into names and has these like 
descriptions of what this name means. And the description of Nimrod is like, Nimrod was a mighty, mighty hunter. And that's where the expression comes from. Like Nimrod, the mighty hunter. And it feels like that explanation isn't really clarifying anything. But to me, it also feels like, is a mighty hunter really great? Like, is this really a good person? To me, it feels like it's a character that might have some good qualities and some not, not good qualities. So to me, it makes sense that it could either be a positive name or a negative name. And it's just kind of like last week, how we talked about that it's almost like when the Torah was written, uh, it is alluding to things that people might have known at the time that we now no longer know. So Nimrod, oh yeah, of mm-hmm. course, a common expression that now none of us know. It's been lost to time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was you know, kind of thinking to frame these early episodes of the podcast, you know, Aaron, you and I are involved Jewish people engaged in the religion of Judaism and the culture of Judaism and the traditions of Judaism. Yet we seem to also acknowledge that our tradition is obviously a compilation of history and culture and anthropology. So I thought Mm -hmm. maybe we could kind of ask each other, because my husband did ask me this a few months ago. I found my answer very disappointing. So let's see what what your answer is. How can we be kind of observant, interested, engaged Jewish people, but also recognize the kind of human nature of our religion? Because a lot of people would think, if you're really into your religion, you must be kind of a a blind follower. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. I I believe everything literally. And that's the only way you could be so engaged. We obviously don't believe everything literally, and yet we're so engaged and so involved. And, you know, right now at this point in my life, you are a little bit more observant than me, but I have been observant in my life while still understanding the human nature of religion. So why for Mm -hmm. you, how do you find value in Jewish life or Jewish practice or Jewish religion while also recognizing it may or may not have always been divinely inspired, you know, based on history and anthropology? Mm. Well, I understand why you've put kind of included these two pieces together, but I want to a little bit, untangle the observance piece from the finding meaning in non-literal readings piece. Cause mm-hmm. for me, they feel a little bit separate. I think that my observance isn't necessarily tied to reading the Torah text and is also is maybe a little bit more around community standards and practices that I understand more broadly. Um, maybe more connected to rabbinic understandings of Judaism as opposed to like the text itself. Of course, these things are connected. There is a traditional approach of understanding the text of the Torah that we're dealing with as divinely given Alpi Adonai Biyad Moshe, as we say in the liturgy, that it was given by the word of the divine, directly recorded by Moses. And if you're not believing that direct divine composition, what makes this different than any other text? Why is there more meaning that you could look for and learn from in this text? Isn't that getting pushed away if you're like seeing it in terms of like the ancient Near Eastern culture that could have been written in, taking these historical approaches too? And what I think I find meaningful and most engaging about the Torah text is just that it's been the text that our people have been interpreting and wrestling with and finding different layers of meaning uh, or this expression of 70 faces of Torah, that the Torah is like a jewel and you can 
appreciate all the many facets of it. And I think it can be beautiful to approach it uh, as divine transmission. It's beautiful to interpret it also through Midrash and folk tales that might come out through it of a Midrashic tradition. I think it's beautiful to also see it in like a more scholarly in light of archaeological finds pieces too. I think there's just lots of different ways and the amount of different approaches that could all add something to the text makes it feel really like rich and ever, ever revealing itself. I love that. I think that's a really great kind of succinct way to talk about how these texts can be important and valuable to you. Even like we said, whether divinely inspired or inspired by people and then people or just by people, I think that's really interesting. And like, for me, if, if you've ever seen Tai Chi, uh, I used to do Tai Chi back in the day. It's so much more interesting when you have two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty 10, 20, 30 people doing it. It just looks more interesting. There's this sort of powerfulness that comes from multiple people doing a thing together. And uh, I guess for me, Jewish texts, because they've been read again and again and again, it's like each time they get read and interpreted, they almost become more powerful. Uh, so I definitely enjoy that aspect of it. And honestly, maybe a part of it is a little bit magical. It's mm. just so interesting to me. Like my mom was asking me today, like, why are you and your brother so much more religious than the two of us? I was like, I don't know. It must just be cyclical and might have a s- slight genetic component. Um, as my parents are not particularly religious, but uh, yeah, I think it just, it just weirdly resonates with me. It's just, it's so in the ether of our culture that it, uh, I don't know. I just, I just find it interesting. And I think, um, you know, maybe on a future episode, we can get into like, what does it mean to believe in God and to believe in all these things in more specific ways that might be burning for people. But I just had hot, I thought we could explore that slight tangent to frame who we are and how we're approaching these texts. I think that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So what were some big takeaways for you kind of for you as a person today rereading this? Because obviously we've been to synagogue. We've heard these parshiot. These ones particularly are particularly resonant. What stood out for you as kind of relating to you today from this week's parsha? Hmm. I should have known that this would be the question because it's what you, you asked last time. Or what you started in on? Um. This isn't the content response, but this is something that at least I want to share because you mentioned, oh, we hear this in synagogue. And I was, because the way they're currently sequencing this, we're recording this uh, podcast the day after we read this Parsha uh, in synagogue. So I was really paying attention to it being read uh, at shul and just noticing like the orality of it when it's chanted in synagogue feels like it's also such a special and unique thing that we're often or at least last last podcast and probably also in future podcasts we're relating to it as we're reading it a little bit off of the page but then I was like, oh, yeah, Paul also told me that there was the JPS audiobook. So then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm also going to listen to the JPS audiobook. So I did that uh, this morning, too. And I was like, oh, yeah, it feels like there is some 
different experience about hearing it read. And I, I hope it also, for the listeners that are experiencing this podcast, right, they're also hearing it orally. And there's just some takeaway that I'm still maybe excited about or embracing in the oral talking about this written text. Okay, so maybe with that uh, that aside, the pieces that I feel like jump out for me, I think that's on my mind a little bit, thinking about climate change and the story. We have a flood that comes, but it feels like there's also like lots of flooding that is happening currently in our world as a result of the way we're mistreating the earth. Often feels like we're barreling towards a future where there's going to be more natural disasters. And like, is there a message in the text? A little bit both around the Noah story where there's it's framed as like humanity's doing something wrong. And then there's this calamity of the flood. And then there's, it also feels like there's, I'm interested to maybe compare and place the Noah story alongside the tower of Babel story, where there's also some overreaching that humanity is doing that ultimately doesn't end well. And it also feels like there's some, I think in the way that we relate to the earth and the way that we relate to the climate to me, it actually, there's something more like the Tower of Babel story where it's like, oh, we think that humanity is like the apex and we're the people that can be challenging the order or the divine. Um, and maybe to take in the message of being humble and seeing our place. Maybe I'm reading this into it, but that's these are some of the questions that are bouncing around for me. I think that kind of um, prophetic angle definitely makes sense. I'm surprised it doesn't come up more often when you read about climate change, allusions to the Great Flood, because it seems like there is a powerful connection you could make there. That one of the implications of climate change could be melting ice caps that would flood the earth. Of course, we had floods in some parts of the world uh, as of this recording this year. And uh, that's that's really interesting because I, I have kind of thought about that. It's It almost kind of goes into this concept of Gaia theory as well, kind of that there's this idea that the Earth is a living organism. Uh-huh. And you, when you think about when you're sick, you get hot. And I guess because your body is fighting viruses, I, I have no science background. So I, I don't know why we get hot when we're sick. Um, but I imagine kind of the Earth getting sick as, a, as an organism and then humans die and then are not able to make the earth as hot. Um, So sometimes I think of it in a very literal cause and effect that way. Um, Sometimes I wonder, we don't know so much about history. This, this used to bother me so much as a child. I assumed that we knew everything that ever happened. And then I remember taking history class and sometimes you can't even agree about what happened last year. Um, So I think sometimes when we read about these stories, I think it could be an environmental analogy and maybe something happened in that time as well that was alluding to it. So I think that would be really interesting to kind of, if we were able to go back in time to see what had been happening at that point. And relatedly, like the thing that jumped out for me this time of reading it, I don't know why this jumped out to me. Um, but sometimes I think about the sort of tips you get from the Torah, because obviously the Torah is a story of the Jewish people or becoming the Jewish people, because they weren't called that at first. 
Judah, that the Jewish people are named after, comes many, many chapters later. Not, not that many, actually, but some chapters later. So I remember how we talked about last week that I thought the naming thing, oh, naming things are powerful. And the thing that stood out to me this week was they talk about how birds are the reason that seeds spread. And I was like, that's so interesting because I remember learning in science class that birds will eat seeds and they'll poop them out and they'll go somewhere else or they'll stick to birds' wings. Like a, you can imagine a, a burr, a burr sticks to your clothing. I thought, oh, that's so interesting. This this portion, this Torah portion is also including some science for us. If you didn't know this, birds can spread seeds. It's like, oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought that the Bible would allude to that. I don't remember the exact line, but I remember listening to it with the JPS version. And I was like, yeah, birds do spread seeds. Uh, great little note for all readers over here. If you ever wondered how a, a tree seed gets from one part of the country to the other, because the bird took it over how else the trees can't rely on wind alone um none of us can none of us can live off wind alone <laughs> so that, that's one thing that kind of i i thought was really fun was the was the little allusions to science and i think i suspect there might be more science uh definitely agrarian science as we continue to read on into the tanakh so I, I feel tangentially it's related to your climate change piece because obviously climate change, you can measure it through science and then just these other scientific things happening I thought was, was for me kind of a fun thing that jumped out this time reading it because I never thought about the bird thing before. Yeah, I, I want to know where that line is. I think I missed it, but I love that. Recognizing the power of birds to spread seeds. And to me, I also feel like it's connected to this Gaian worldview that you're mentioning of like, oh, the world itself is one living organism, and right? The birds are part of it. The birds are connected to how this how the trees get around and we're connected to it too. And it's all tied together. Seeing that holistic approach. I, I feel like I'm looking for that holistic approach. And to me, that feels like a really valuable outlook in thinking about at least questions around climate change. So I'm, I'm interested and hope we can talk more about Gaia in our Torah conversations. We're, we're real blasphemers now, uh, bringing Gaia into it, but I love it. I'm, I don't mind uh, talking about traditions that I think also might bring other things to, to the forefront. And I did find that line. Um, this version is from Chabad.org's uh, summary of Parshat Noah. This is Genesis chapter 7, verse 3. Also, of the fowl of the heavens, seven pairs, male and female, uh. to keep seed alive on the face of the earth. Uh, uh. So I think this also relates maybe to climate change or environmentalism. When we talk about bees as pollinators, like God's actually saying like, oh, we need these birds to keep seed alive on the face of the earth. You know, maybe you could read the Hebrew better than, I mean, much better than me, Aaron, but I assume they mean literal seed. They're not referring, because I know later they're referring to seed as meaning descendants. Um, do you know if they're referring to literal seeds here, or are they referring to the the, the descendants of certain animals? Right, it does say, lechayot zera al pnei kol ha'aretz, which I think as he translated, to keep seed alive upon all the earth, or that's how the JPS is translating it. It does sound like it's talking about 
actual seeds. Like I, I think it could be read as the continuance of birds, but I, yeah, I'm not sure what the simple meaning of the text is. I mean, I only know that word because of the Talmud. Was it Zeraim? Is uh, yeah. It's like, where have I heard this word before? Of course. Uh-huh. At first I was like, there's no way I've heard the word for seed in Hebrew in my life. Well, I mean, I'm sure I've heard it, but I've never absorbed it. I'm like, no, wait, it is an important word. He's studying Talmud. Talmud. Yeah, it's <laughs> the first tractate. Yeah, it's true. I did a year, for those of you listening, I did a year of listening to Dafyomi audiobook, or a year and a half, and I didn't make it past a year and a half. It takes seven and a half years or so. But I do remember, I don't, I do remember seeds being one of the words that came up as the name of a section. Yeah. So yeah, I think the environmental and, aspect of this is really interesting. And uh, mm-hmm. or do you have any other kind of thoughts on environmentalism on the on the Noah part of the story, like or the Ark? Like it, it is something that I think definitely jumps out to the the modern reader today. I'm also just noticing as we're focusing on the birds here, the birds make a reappearance at the end of the Noah story with the birds that get sent out and are the messengers of if the land is ready yet. Feels like they're an important intermediary in the story and in this reading. That's a really interesting connection that birds are an intermediary for spreading of seeds and they're the intermediary for the message. I guess it's not even a message from God necessarily, just that if the land is, if people are able to dock, I think that's, that's what the birds are being sent out to uh, explore. So it's interesting twice in one short parsha, short, I mean, in one parsha, that birds are twice acting as an intermediary, giving them some elevated significance in the mm-hmm. story alone. So that I didn't make that connection between the two things. That's really interesting. And that's maybe why studying in Hevruta and friendship or pairs is so helpful because I notice one thing, you notice the other half of another thing. It's like when you're um, identical twins separated at birth with half of a heart necklace you put it together <laughs> when you meet in university, like some sort of parent trap uh, derivative. That's how I imagine this. And we just get to keep doing that over and over again in our Hebruta, discovering more. I love it. I love it too. It is kind of constantly, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of unlocking, just like it unlocks things a little bit more from the text that would have been locked to you previously. Uh, you know, another example, kind of those from those spy movies where two people put in a key and turn it at the same time, and it unlocks. Um, I'm just full of yeah. 90s metaphors today. 90s film <laughs> metaphors is uh, how I'm viewing the world this week. Keep them coming. Uh, also, just to say that image of the bird at the end, finding dry land is like the image of the dove as a symbol of peace. The dove with the olive branch in its mouth is the that image of, oh, there's a, there's harbor for our ship that's been getting through the flood so whatever this intermediary messenger is we've taken that on and i i'm like also like the there is a lot of talk about animals here and i was just listening to a, the new yorker sunday read podcast also this morning uh i was talking about like the the lack that we have in our contemporary lives where animals are like not as part of our everyday existence, like that our ancestors really used them as like mythical symbols and messengers. And like the Torah has this aspect in it too. And I was also like kind of reflecting a little bit about as I drive up and down the street, there's like 
on St. Clair, the street near where I live, there's always these flocks of pigeons that are flying. And it's like, oh, do I see these? Even though uh, pigeons and dove are like related, but I feel like I often see pigeons as like an annoyance or like as just this bird that's in the way and making a mess. I don't know. I'm, I'm also trying to open up to see the opportunity of connecting with animals and wildlife in a different in a different way. This is just a glimmer of an idea that I hope we'll get to expand more on. That's very true. Like, what if we unlocked the way we looked at pigeons and saw them as the relatives of doves as they truly are? You know, we're uh, not just this dirty city animal, but really you know, this thing that's a, an integral part of several traditions as well, the dove. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the olive branch being a common metaphor we use. Something else around the... Uh, the timing of the olive branch in the story that really stood out to me, this has stood out to me for years, actually, is the rainbow signifying the covenant um, Uh that God says he'll never do this again to us. So actually, maybe we don't have to worry. There won't be any flood because God said he'll never do this again. Um, So problem solved. But Mm -hmm. uh, the rainbow being a symbol of the covenant and uh, in Judaism, of course, for those of you who don't know, we we do things like blessing over bread, over wine, but we can also do blessings over natural miracles, like seeing a rainbow. And the blessing for over a rainbow, this is again from Chabad.org, so thank you again, Chabad.org, for everything you do for us, is, uh, I'll say it in Hebrew and in English, Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Zocher Habrit so blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who remembers the covenant and is faithful, faithful to his covenant and keeps his promise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've always found that line, that blessing, very powerful. You know, and I know we've talked about how we are uh, aware of sometimes the man-made nature of religion, but sometimes when emotionally, I feel like I need there to be a God and I need there to be God to be looking out for us kind of as a, a personal response to maybe suffering or difficulty. I've, I've definitely said this blessing when I've seen a rainbow, but just even reading it on its own, that God who is faithful to his covenant, his agreement with us and keeps his promise. Uh, I just think that this Bracha is very powerful. And also a lot of people don't realize that Judaism does really have a lot of the power of mindfulness in it. That when we say a blessing, we're taking note of this moment. Blessing over the wine, blessing over the bread, of course. Mm. And then these natural blessings, like, okay, something beautiful is happening. I'm going to stop and take note of it. It is kind of funny, though. I mean, sometimes you do blessings so often. I think about saying the Shema every night and the Ve'ahavta, as me and my husband do. And sometimes now we say it quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker, uh, <laughs> which I think anyone who's been to Jewish, traditional Jewish services, sometimes quickness is a key feature because it's gotten so long. She's like, we're really speeding to get through to go to sleep. Um, so that's just one other thing of this Parsha of Noah that I wanted to bring up, just the beauty of the rainbow in the story how that shows up connected to brachot, to blessings, 
and how Jewish mindfulness, I think also is another interesting concept that we can explore further because uh, me and Aaron have an interest in Jewish meditation as does some of our extended circle. So I think it'd be another interesting thing to come back to. Yeah. Let's also keep coming back to that. That's such a great connection of seeing how the text can help us notice the blessings and be mindful of moments in our lives. And even as you're saying it, I'm like thinking about, Oh yeah, it is true. Like when you see a rainbow, I think everybody experiences like, Oh, that's so special. It's so nice to see a rainbow. And you have some feeling that like comes up inside of you. That's like, Oh, that's beautiful. And like to have words or like a, a practice with a structure that helps you slow down and say like, uh, this connects me to however we're understanding breeds and covenant and connection and faithfulness and commitment. It's so nice. You know, it's like, it reminds me of that um, saying in mindfulness, I think maybe it's maybe John Kabat-Zinn, but I think this also is used <laughs> And lots of mindfulness traditions. Now, now we're really heretics, bringing to uh, two different traditions uh, unrelated to Judaism. But I think everyone will forgive us. Uh, as long as you're breathing, there's more right with you than wrong with you. And if you have the moment to notice a rainbow, it's kind of the idea of a shechechianu, like you've made it to this day to see a rainbow. God's definitely looked out for you up to this point. You know, is <laughs> one way uh, to kind of connect it to mindfulness and to gratitude for being alive. Um, of course, we can do it with every breath, but I think a rainbow is one of those moments that really captures our attention, so to speak. Some phrases in Jewish tradition really bring make me tear up easily. This is one of them. The other one is the letters on a dreidel. Uh, a great miracle happened here. That always gets me for some reason as we move into Hanukkah mm. season down the road. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share this this thing that resonates and reverberates with me whenever I which reminded me when I read this text. Yeah. Mm. I also appreciate you sharing about the dreidel and practices that are resonant for you. It's like, Oh yeah, that's such a nice way to see it. I feel like I often like, Oh yeah, the dreidel, some kids game, but a great miracle happened here. Oh, isn't that like what we're trying to see all the time? That's a good mindfulness lesson for me. Yeah. I wish that Hanukkah came up. In the Torah. <laughs> Strange, I think it only comes up in the Catholic texts, if I'm not mistaken. I think they're the only ones who use the Book of Maccabees. Um, we have yeah. to rely on... Yeah, there's not that many texts in mainstream Judaism that refer to Hanukkah. So we'll, we, can, we can table that for now, because I think we'll have, to find, we'll have to find some connection to it later on. Even yeah, if so it's an artificial one. Miketz, right? The story of Joseph always connects with Hanukkah. We'll talk more about it. Um, I have more thoughts. Do you have things that you wanted to move us towards? My thoughts are boundless, but I was curious. We can either stay here in this area, but also we're blessed in this part shot because it's kind of a double whammy. There's also the great narrative of the Tower of Babel. If you have uh-huh. thoughts on the Tower of Babel as well. Let's talk about the Tower of Babel. Yes, let's, let's give the Tower of Babel at least a few minutes of attention. I do love this story because I love languages. So just anything that refers to languages, I find interesting. And Babel, of course, is also the name of a language program. Uh, Babel is a language learning program like Duolingo or Mango. Uh, 
And I found the story really interesting as well. You know, we, God creates multiple languages so people can't discuss and continue building of the tower, um, kind of suggesting that when people speak one language, everyone can understand, understand each other somewhat uh, as best as they can. So it did make me think a little bit about, um, it's a little bit counterintuitive to, the, to our current cultural moment. I think there is a big push for language preservation of dying languages, even for my family. My family grew up spoke, speaking Lithuanian, which is a language in Eastern Europe, uh, which a couple hundred years ago, a lot of social scientists of that day thought this language is absolutely going to die out. Um, and if it did die out, then people would just speak some larger local language, either Polish or Russian from either side. Uh, those were languages that were important at different times in different places in that region. Um, so like, why do we want to preserve languages when if we all speak one language, it's so much easier to get along. It kind of made me ask that question. Uh, I suppose each language is comes with a culture and each culture brings something special to the world. But it did make me think about why, why do we find preserving languages so important if, if speaking one language is a good way to, understand each other if we all speak one language there's no communication barrier so it did make me think a little bit about that and i feel like you've got such a good progressive lens on like why 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 do we want to preserve smaller languages that exist why is this an important thing if i could put you on the spot it feels like i mainly know english and a bit of hebrew just having access to hebrew feels like you're saying opens up other worlds and i feel like there's so much richness that is encoded in language which is such a huge part of culture that it feels like so valuable of course there's a beautiful universal idea but everybody's speaking one universal language which of course like the rabbis are like oh yeah obviously they were speaking hebrew that's the language that they were speaking before it got all divvied up but like projects like esperanto where it's like oh yeah shouldn't we all speak one language and we probably also are speaking from a place of privilege being English speakers, which is like often the language that people are turning to as the unifying language in, I don't know, let's say the, the Western world, whatever that means. But yeah, I feel it with my family and Yiddish at least, which there's some communities that are still speaking Yiddish, but I feel like there's a whole culture that's been lost and, I don't have access to like my own family's connection because m my grandparents on my father's side who were speaking Yiddish didn't, didn't have that passed down to me. And yeah, it feels like a loss. So it, it does, it does feel like there is beauty in having all these languages. And I think some interpreters do see the tower of Babel, like not only as a punishment, but as like something that was, meant to happen or the interpretation that I'm thinking of that I've heard via Rabbi David Kasher of the Parsha Nut podcast and now book who quotes uh, the commentator Ibn Ezra that says, oh, don't be surprised. Like who, who do you think was building the, the Tower of Babel? Well, Noah was there. He was part of the, one of the builders. And also Abraham was there. He was also building. So it's like some connecting piece that's connecting these stories together. And like these are the righteous people that were involved in 
this project that maybe was trying to get to some outcome that can help us understand humanity and civilization differently. I really like that because I guess what we're saying then, or what you're saying, is this is the beginning of culture. Culture is starting through these languages being created. I uh, I remember reading this essay that I've just looked up to make sure I'm referencing things correctly in graduate and undergraduate by Raymond Williams called Culture is Ordinary. And I believe the sense was something, just the idea that culture can't help but form. So it was only mm-hmm. a matter of time that when humanity was there, that culture would form. I, I was reading some folk stories a bit related to this as well. And again, Louis Ginsburg's Legends of the Jews will come up probably every week, but they did mention that God spoke Hebrew. Of course, this was the first language, uh, which I find mm-hmm. humorous because there's this really great episode of Golden Girls, which is a, a sitcom from the late 80s, early 90s, about four retired women sharing a home. And the one kind of religious Catholic older mother, Sophia, says, uh, there's no be- something like, there's no language better than Latin, the language that Jesus spoke. And her mother, her daughter's like, Jesus did not speak Latin. He spoke Aramaic. She was like, even in church? <laughs> like, <laughs> just this, um, because there were times in Jewish history, we live in kind of a phenomenon now where Hebrew was not the main language spoken. It was more of this ancient language. And older things almost feel like, feels like you can't argue with them. Oh, like Hebrew, of course, it was God's language because it's the first language. It's the language that people spoke before we adopted this new language. So I find that really funny and interesting. And I did want to kind of mention one cute folk story I found in that compilation from Tower of Babel was that the tower was so high that it took you a year to get to the top of it. And because of that, this is a really dark story, but I, this is so interesting. Whenever they, someone saw a brick fall, they would cry because it would means that it would take a year to get that high up to place another brick. But if a person fell, no one cried because it's just part of the things that come out in the wash when you build a big thing like a tower. So mm. first of all, just that kind of vastness that it takes you a year to climb the tower and that people weep when they see a brick drop. Um, but not so much when they see a person drop. It's, you know, it's totally just comes with the territory. So I love those folk stories because it does add kind of a little bit of the culture of whoever was telling it at the time. But that that one I thought really was, out of all the ones I saw related to this week's partial, that one was almost kind of the, the Three Stooges version of of Torah, you know. Oh, no, like Sally fell off the Tower of Babel. No big swig, though. At least it wasn't a brick, you know? I, that's how I imagine people talking about it in some sort of old-timey transatlantic accents. Yeah, but as you're sharing it, it feels also very contemporary. Like, I'm thinking of capitalist, industrial world. Like, even reading today's headlines, like, thinking about, or at least in today's Toronto Star headline, they were talking about that the people that have been most, like, affected and have the highest death rates from COVID are people who are working in industry and workers that we don't really pay attention to. The article was talking about like that there was a sense of like, we need to keep producing doors and gum. And these are like essential workers producing what? Like some 
material thing that we think is the most important and like the value of human lives sometimes becomes secondary to whatever thing it is that we think that we need to produce. And yeah, I feel like you're sharing that story and I think interpreting this story from the Torah in that way is like, yeah, a reminder that that's not, can't lose sight of what's important. It reminds me a little bit uh, of also an essay that I read once uh, Evan Eisenberg's The Ecology of Eden. He has this uh, setup of the center pole of the world, and there's these two versions. One is the like the Canaanites, and he views like the Israelites as a subsection of the Canaanites, would see like the mountain as like the central place in the world. But the Mesopotamians and like other cultures that the Israelites are pointing to would see the ziggurat or the tower as like the center of the world. And like one is all about humans creation. And one is a little bit more about divine creation. And he also like interprets and sees like the garden of Eden call back last week as a mountain where like that there's rivers that are sources that are like flowing out of it. There's like ways that you can, there's other places in the Tanakh where it seems like the garden of Eden is on a mountain. And like, that's our, like central piece is the mountain of God, right? And that keeps coming back in Jewish tradition and Sinai and and, uh, Moriah or like the mountain that Jerusalem is on. That's our holy center. Our holy centers aren't meant to be towers or the creations that we build. Uh, It's about like finding the divinity and the holy natural places and connecting with God there. It's funny you'd say that too, because I was thinking, and I guess this came up when, I guess you've invited me to synagogue in the past month and I didn't go. I was like, now that I'm married, I find it harder to go to synagogue because I just Friday night is such a a family time to do Jewish ritual. And I was like, oh, you know, there's the center of this building. But now that I'm married, the center kind of has moved into the home a little bit, which I think is Mm -hmm. a great quality of Jewish tradition. But I was like, man, how do people get to synagogue on Friday when you want to do all of the home things too? Man, I feel like there's so much to talk about because you also reminded me of like, when Jews versus Samaritans would argue about which mountain's the right mountain. I'm like, oh, that's another good one. But I feel like we should start wrapping up. And I feel like we can allude to next week's Parsha as well, because much like last week ended with Noah, kind of a a biblical cliffhanger. This one, I believe Mm -hmm. Abram does come up at the very end. So there's this person, Abram. Maybe we'll learn more about him next week. Sounds like a familiar name, but not sure. Sounds like so, a sort of a word jumble. I'm wondering if we'll be learning more about this person next week. We'll have to see if we learn more next time. Yeah, well, join us next week for next week's light dive into the Parsha. And the next week's Parsha is... Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha. Very popular expression. So next week, we'll get right into it. So you're, this is Paul Saleka signing off. And signing off and- as well is... This is Aaron Rotenberg. Have a great week. Have a great week. 